0: Hi everyone, welcome to episode 291 of our Tick Bootcamp Podcast. The title of today's interview is Lime's Rocket Scientist, an interview with Greg Lee. My name is Matt Sabatello. My name is Richard Johannesson. You may be wondering why we titled this interview Lime's Rocket Scientist, and that's because Greg Lee is a former scientist who worked on a wide variety of research studies for NASA. Then he became chronically ill, and had to research how to get himself better. Greg Lee is now the driving force behind the Lyme Research and Healing Center, Goodbyelime.com, and he's a world expert on using Chinese herbs and alternative medicines and treatments for healing incredibly persistent Lyme disease and multiple chronic infections. Greg gives us very specific information about how to overcome chronic Lyme disease without having a severe Herxheimer reaction. Throughout his career, He's learned from his experiences, and he's been able to fine-tune his treatment protocols to help you get better with the most precise and targeted treatments he's discovered. We discuss all the treatment tools he uses when treating patients and exactly how they work. So without further ado, Greg Lee in, Lime's Rocket Scientist.
1: Hey, Greg Lee, and welcome to the Tick Camp Podcast. Hey, Rich. Thanks for having me on. So Matt and I are really blessed to have you, Greg. So please, uh, first, share with our listeners the name of your business. It's the Lyme Research and Healing Center. And Greg, you come to uh, the Lyme disease world from an interesting place. So let's first talk about your background and uh, you'll work first as a rocket scientist. Yeah, I'm basically a nerd, a big
2: geek. And, uh, you know, I grew up uh, here in Maryland. My dad worked for the Navy. My mom worked for the Geological Survey. And so we watched the NASA astronauts going into space and I thought, oh, that is really cool. They're landing on the moon. I want to do stuff like that. (laughs) So I, you know, I played chess and did lots of math problems and, you know, studied engineering and eventually got to work at NASA doing all sorts of fun, exciting projects. Uh, Got to work on the space station, Hubble Space Telescope with robots. We had robots big enough that they could pick up cars and we use them to simulate the uh, space shuttle robotic arm. We would bring astronauts in and they would uh, do experiments on building the space station and stuff like that. So it's really just huge, you know, tinker toys at a maximum huge level in space.
1: So um, as a math geek and as a chess geek and as the son of it sounds like two science geeks, um, what was it that you envisioned yourself doing during your childhood? I mean, was it was it your goal to become a rocket scientist or did you have some other uh, vision for your future? Oh, I wanted to go into space,
2: (laughs) you know? So yeah, I want to, I want to ride one of those rockets too. And, you know, float around and, you know, do all sorts of fun science stuff. And that was like, yeah,
1: I want to do that. So. So talk to us about your, your educational experience during your childhood first, right? I mean, you grew up, uh, you grew up in the line belt, right? I mean, you grew up in Maryland and um, you know, you're, you're certainly not as deep in the line belt as we are here on Long Island. And people know that because you speak English properly as opposed to what they're hearing from us, but um, uh, as a, either as a science interested kid or as a child of two uh, scientists or, you know, as a as a student in your uh, in your pre college um, education, know anything about tick and tick diseases?
2: No, I got bit by you know the bigger ticks when we go camping, and and never you know just put a match head on it and like you know, <laughs> oh man, you know take it out, throw it away, you know. And then all I think it was probably in ninety. 96 I got my first deer tick bite in West Virginia you know pulled it out threw it down the shower drain and you know <laughs> it's like okay so Didn't seem to get any illness
1: from it or infections so so great so you you were generally aware of ticks for most of your life right you grew up in the lion belt you were getting bitten by different types of ticks during the course of your life right
2: they, they, yeah, they freaked me out, you know, because I didn't want blood sucking things touching me. And, you know, it just that was uh, my uh, a little adding to my like neurosis being in nature, you know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, uh, you know, we, we certainly don't like none of us like to have things sucking our blood. But of course, the thing that's most challenging about ticks is what they spit into us, not what they take out of us. And were you aware of the possibility during your childhood that these ticks that were biting you could make you sick oh yeah i mean like rocky
2: mountain spotted fever was one of the things but that was about it and you know nothing about Lyme or bartonella or babesia or any of those things so
1: it was not a not even on the radar so uh Greg, we were talking offline and I shared with you, uh, you and I are the same age that uh, I was getting bitten by ticks and I was aware of the uh, ticks um, very much like you were. And I was more concerned about Rocky Mountain spotted fever because Lyme had not yet been discovered or at least the, the, um, the alleged discovery of the bacteria by Bergdorfer had not been made public uh, until long after I was uh, aware of ticks. It was Rocky Mountain spotted fever that we were concerned about most. Is that the same experience you had during your childhood?
2: Yeah, that was all. That was the only one I even remotely heard about, and you know, didn't pay much mind to it because, you know, I only had a couple tick bites. I didn't have a ton.
1: All right. So now let's let's um, talk about one last piece of this. Were there any steps that you had taken, either because of the education that you had received, either at home, socially, or um, you know, in school, that caused you to take any steps to protect yourself from getting bitten by ticks? Were you using any, any type of uh, chemical or other uh, tools to protect you from tick bites?
2: I mean, like, you know, we used off, you know, spraying in our cells and that was about it. Nothing more than that.
1: Right, so let's fast forward to your college education. When did you go to college and what did you major in?
2: So in, I went in the early eighties to University of Maryland and then got a degree in computer science and that was part of my NASA plan was to, you know, go work in aerospace, and that figured uh, that was a good way to jump into that profession, and uh, fortunately, I had taken a class uh, from a NASA scientist, and he was really a cool guy named uh, Paul Loman. He was one of the last guys who was questioning continental drift in the world, and he, he was a he was a the, the he, expert in plate tectonics. And eventually, he came around to, when I was working for. Him, like, I'm like, uh, are you sure you
1: don't believe in this stuff? Me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> About a couple of years after working with he's like, yeah, yeah, you're right. You know. Uh, yeah.
1: <laughs> So talk to us about the path from the University of Maryland, which we know is one of the top schools in the country, to NASA, how did that, how did that path um, open up for you?
2: Well, I you know, worked uh, with uh, Dr. Lohman uh, for a while as a college student and uh, met other, made other contacts with other people at NASA. And then after graduating, I went and worked in other uh, companies And eventually I came back and worked for a NASA contractor, Well, actually several NASA contractors on, as I mentioned, multiple projects with robots and the space station, Hubble Space Telescope, uh, climate modeling. We worked on uh, looking at, you know, how global climate change was being affected by man-made things like aerosols and all sorts of scientific research around that. So, you know, just early on in my career, I, really got to see the impact of people having on the environment and how it seems that a lot of people don't want to hear about it, you know, or don't, you know, pay it much mind or want to change their lifestyle. And unless it's legislated or, you know, more of a stronger way of getting people to comply with not, you know, destroying the environment.
1: So now you, so you have this awakening when you're working, um, working as a uh, rocket scientist, and uh, you ultimately now pivot away from doing that type of work and, um, and your career takes a new path. So talk to us about what inspired you to change the course of your career. Well,
2: uh, as I worked at NASA, there were a lot of really Great projects. And sometimes they would require being up like 24 hours straight because you have, you know, people on the space shuttle going over at 2 a.m. in the morning and you need to be there and do your experiment because you have a really short window because they're running pretty much, you know, experiments uh, from like 12, 16 hours a day. So you have a little window to say, hey, we want to do this robot experiment. So And then you're preparing for the experiment, you run the experiment, and then you're, you know, analyzing the data afterwards. So it's a long, long, you know, time. And over time, I learned, uh, I put my stress in my gut. And so I began to get uh, pain, cramping, and went to the doctor, and he diagnosed me with irritable bowel syndrome. And he gave me some medication, and I left, and I'm like, okay. It didn't do anything. And he says, Well, you know, it's stressed. And I'm like, Well, what do you do with that? It's like, you know, go de stress. And I'm like, Oh, great. <laughs> You're not helping me. <laughs> and so uh, I was, you know, having difficulty being in meetings and working. And it was just a really desperate time for me because I thought, Oh, man, I'm going to lose everything and my livelihood here. And it, you know, I was like, just didn't know what to do. And a colleague of mine suggested do want to try acupuncture. And I said, you know, got nothing to lose. I'll try it. And so I did that. And fortunately, over the course of about two months, my symptoms began to abate till finally, they're about 90% better, you know, changed some diet, took some remedies, things like that. And I was just like, "Woohoo! okay, back to work, you know, and then yeah, was working, working, working. And then the stress again built up over the next year and I started to get the same symptoms. I said, okay, I need to make a change here. And, you know, I, uh, watched, uh, Bill Moyer's interview of Joseph Campbell and he said, follow your bliss. And I'm like, I don't know. Okay. What is my bliss? I don't know what my bliss. Is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I'm looking all over the place. Man. I don't see any, you know, my guts starting to you know do all this stuff. And so, uh, All of a sudden, it hit me to go help others. It was kind of like a, like just deep insight, kind of blinding flash, like kind of dose of Campbell kind of describes it as like, hey, you know, when things just open for you, then doors open that you didn't know were there. And so I went, okay, it's going to help others to heal, like I was helped, you know, in my healing path. So I gave up engineering, gave up management, and went and studied acupuncture and As I was leaving, the my manager colleagues were making fun of me, (laughs) and the engineers that were like, you know, uh, more the worker level, I guess, not management level. They were like saying, "Man, I wish I had the guts to do what you're doing."
1: (laughs) So, Greg, let's talk a little bit about uh, Eastern versus Western medicine for a moment before we before we continue down this path. So. Um, Obviously, you grew up in the U.S. You're you're a uh, actually second generation American. What did you know about Eastern medicine, either culturally or from other sources prior to you coming in contact with the acupuncturist that you treated with uh, when you had the initial issues with your gut? So
2: when I was a kid, I uh, had an uncle who worked for the government. He actually worked for OSS, which was the Precursor to the CIA, and he was a their China expert. And so he would take bees and sting himself to treat his arthritis. And I thought, that you are crazy, dude. I would never, I mean, whenever I got stung by a bee, I'd be like, wow, you know, <laughs> like you are doing this on purpose. And so, you know, later I learned, you know, more about the healing powers of it. But at the time, it's just more like, oh, pain, bee sting, sting. No, <laughs> no, thank you. And so that was it. Uh, you know, my family, uh, they didn't do like acupuncture, except my uncle or be, or ethical apotherapy. Uh, they did more like traditional medicine, Western medicine, things like that.
1: So your, your background as a child growing up in Maryland um, was largely at least from the standpoint of the type of of, of medicinal treatment that you use anytime you were sick or your parents were sick was Western. You didn't have any, you didn't have any traditional Asian um, um, medication or, or medicine practices as part of your, part of your childhood. Uh,
2: I mean, it was some of the like tradition, I guess probably the closest thing would be even the food, like some of the remedies would have been more in like soups and stews, like when you're sick or, but you know, I did the you know the Pepto Bismol, the Vicks Vapor Rub, the you know the, the Wonder Bread, the
1: <laughs> so now so, let's, so let, let's talk about so you 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 decide you decide that you're going to have to make a uh, career change. You ultimately come to this moment where you have this epiphany that you're you're actually called to help other people heal rather than to build these big Tonka trucks that are picking things up and putting things down uh, even though that's in space and you now you now begin to study acupuncture and how does that now take you forward with your additional studies in um, in Chinese medicine well it kind of a allures- little when I first got to acupuncture
2: school, I was expecting a rigorous, like, you know, curriculum and all this stuff. And it wasn't at all like engineering school. (laughs) It was like, you know, opening up, uh, you know, subtle sensing ability, uh, through touch, through, uh, sensing different energetic changes in people's, uh, you know, of color and their sound of their voice. And it was just like, you know, I've been a big left brain analytical type. And this was like, really, you know, immersing me more into like a, a right brain intuitive feeling kind of world, which was new. And it was like, you know, had value because it helped me. So I was like, okay, I'm game. It's not overly difficult like engineering school and it was kind of fun because you know they're mostly i think uh people my age and they were you know into healing and
1: connecting and
2: you know all that stuff so i was like yeah, is i was into it
1: so you ultimately went on to study um acupuncture and, and chinese herbal um medicine and uh and you got a master's degree where did you where did you go to study to uh, gain your master's degree in acupuncture and, and Chinese herbal uh, certification?
2: There's a, a university in Maryland. Uh, that the when I was going, the name was the Traditional Acupuncture Institute. It's now called the Maryland uh, University of Integrative Health.
1: Okay, so is that a part of the University of Maryland, or is it a separate college? It's a separate you- college. And. Um, So as you're going through this process, um, and you're, and you're now, um, acquiring your master's degree, um, where did you think that was going to take you? I was going to go help others
2: heal. Like I, you know, (laughs) needed help. And so I kind of, when I got out, I actually, uh, was saying, okay, I want to work with chronic pain patients, chronic, you know, illness patients and, You know, I found that uh, because I thought, you know, I had the like kind of the oh, this can heal everything, you know, this can help anybody kind of belief system. And and as reality, real life kind of shows you, hey, it doesn't always work with everybody, especially those people who may have things like fibromyalgia, Lyme disease, you know, those kinds of issues. So I I got it definitely with the, the the patients that weren't like because I had some good re- initial results with chronic pain and some five of patients. And there were some that was just like, you know, I'd do research, I'd look up, you know, other remedies and try new things, and it just, you know, would last for a little bit and then relapse. It lasts for a little bit and relapse. And, you know, so part of that was then, you know, studying with other teachers, and who have more experience with complex cases. And I, I worked with some uh, actually blind Japanese acupuncturists for a while, that were uh, actually somewhere like World War II vets, that in Japan, they were not just, okay, you're blind, you know, they said, okay, but you have other senses. So we're going to train you to do healing work. And so they would have their wife show them around, you say, when, you know, but when they would had really intuitive, subtle sensing abilities that were really remarkable. So, and actually one of them, uh, Mr. Yanagista, who's no longer uh, with us and uh, around, he was like, you know, short, had, you know, big ears. And he looked, if he was green, he would look like Yoda. Sorry.
1: <laughs> so um, let's, let's pause that for a second, Greg, and talk about um, when, you, when you were, when you were, going through the master's degree program, were you trained at all or was Lyme disease at all put on your radar during the educational training that you received prior to acquiring your master's degree? So Lyme was not part of the
2: curriculum because when you're trained in like, you know, acupuncture, Chinese herbal medicine, you're dealing with looking at uh, people in terms of like what I would call more like natural metaphors. Are they really hot? Are they really cold? Are they really what they call damp, which is the closest thing to like toxic inflammation? You know, they talk about being invaded by pathogens, but they didn't name like specific ones. Uh, They would talk about, you know, Later, when I went through schooling, you know, they would talk about, yeah, this is probably like a cold or a flu or things like that. But it wasn't really a deep dive into infectious disease. It was more like, how do you help a person build up a stronger defensive chi or defensive energy, what they call the wei chi? How do you, if something's gotten in, how do you strengthen the next level of defenses so it pushes stuff out? So one of the ways they talk about when like a pathogen gets in, they call it an invasion of wind. And part of the strategies is to expel the wind. Now in China, expelling wind is very good because you're getting rid of the pathogen in Western society. It is not such a good thing to expel
1: wind. (laughs) Well, we'll get there in a second, Greg. So talk to us about, talk to us about how, this this career path ultimately brings you to Lyme disease? When did you first start treating Lyme disease? And then how did you ultimately develop the passion for treating patients with Lyme disease to the point where you open up a uh, a practice dedicated to treating Lyme? So in the beginning, I
2: started treating patients that seemed to be a little more complex than my colleagues were getting because I was in a group practice. And I started getting chronic pain patients, fibromyalgia patients, and, you know, the fibromyalgia patients were, I was having more challenges with, and one of them came to me and says, hey, I just got diagnosed with Lyme disease. And I'm like, oh, okay, La, what's that? <laughs> Lyme disease, oh, it's not that tick thing, right? Or whatever, you know, This is like in the, oh, I guess in the 80, late 80s or something, probably. Um, and so, I, you know, didn't see much research out there on natural remedies for it. Uh, And so I did find that there was similar spirochete diseases in China, leptospirosis. uh, And so there are like remedies and formulas for patients that are infected with those spirochete illnesses. So I said, hey, I got another spirochete illness. Why don't we try these things? And I had initially some very good results with some patients in that they would take uh, combinations of like forsythia fruit, honeysuckle, vine, uh, hotunia, uh, you know, a lot of the herbs now that you may see in some of uh, Dr. buners you know, recommendations for Lyme and co-infections. And this is from, you know, research that was done, you know, in the like 80s or before on these leptospirosis patients. And it's like, oh, having good results, having good results. But then there was always a subset that no matter how much treatment or how many herbs I gave to them, they would relapse. And it didn't matter. How, I mean, they were taking like a lot of stuff and I give them like uh, there's a couple of ways you can give herbs to patients. You can give them as like tinctures, you can give them as powders. And then like the way we we're taught in school is you give them the raw herbs, all these barks and roots and leaves and all in a big bag. And they take it home and they boil it up. And, you know, this woman did this and she comes back, throws the herbs down on the treatment table. And I go like, uh, what happened? She goes like, well, I cooked this stuff up. It stunk up my whole house. My kids complained and it tasted terrible. I am never taking this stuff again, no matter how much better I get. <laughs> And i like, okay, I think I need to come up with a different delivery method. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, and then I started looking into like, okay, there are powdered herbs, there are tinctures, there's other things, and uh, did some continuing education and presented at conferences and met a guy named uh, Dietrich Klinghart. And he was talking about putting things into a microparticle. And I thought, that's what I need. So... For now, what we do, we take, we test patients for individual herbs and supplements and essential oils. And one of the ways we give it to them is in a microparticle because microparticles are small. They can go deeper into cells. So you have intercellular infections of Lyme and co infections and mold and parasites and viruses. You want to get the remedy to where these things are hiding. And in different studies, they go deeper through the blood-brain barrier into the nervous system. Because unfortunately, we do see a lot of patients here with neuro-Lyme, neurological infections. And also they go deeper into biofilms. Because, you know, I was at you know ILADS, I don't know, probably 10 years ago, and the biggest thing was biofilms. We have to break up the biofilms. We have to, you know, it's just like, that's the, you know, every year there's some big thing or theme or something like that and so i was just like okay right now there's this uh, herb called um what was that herb so, uh, i have to think about what that was it, it is called harataki and the english version i can't remember the english version but it was in one study found to break up biofilms i think uh, by this high school student in, in the southern u.s so uh, actually one of my other lime doc colleagues called and says hey, what do you know about this herb <laughs> called erudaki? I'm trying to use it with my patients for their biofilms. I'm like, I'm trying it. And, and some of them are having really big Herxheimer reactions on it. And I thought, okay, well, when I was in high school, I used to work at uh, IHOP. And uh, I work, sometimes work the graveyard shift, which is like from 12, you know, 11 o'clock at night till seven in the morning. And, you know, you go into the storeroom, you get stuff, you turn the light on and all the little drips of syrup and whatever, attract the bugs. <laughs> and So you're there, you're like, oh, this is kind of like taking the biofilms off. You turn the light on, all the bugs go, ah, they scatter out of the biofilm. And that's why the person is probably having these big herxes. So I was learned how to be much more cautious with anti-biofilm strategies until a patient has the ability to detox, drain inflammation, not be so aggressive because my colleagues were also reporting similar things with other, you know, antibiofilm biofilm treatments. So hey, Greg,
0: Greg, can I interrupt you for a second? I'm sorry. I just want to just back up a, a little bit and ask you a few questions here. So yes. when, you, when you were talking about the microparticle herbs, right? So you, yep. you were mentioning that you tried regular herbs with some of your patients. They got better, but they relapsed and it wasn't working, which is when you learned about these microparticle herbs. So herbs are just really things from earth, plants, things from the ground that we take that are used for medicinal purposes and you're, you're grinding them up. What is, what is a microparticle herbal remedy? What does that mean? Is that is it a really finely ground up herb? Is that the difference between that and a regular herbal regimen that somebody would take? So
2: microparticle herbs are taking uh, these, these herbs I get are already powdered. They're usually organic or wildcrafted and taking them and putting them into a high-speed mixer, and that makes a smaller and smaller particle. And then we take that, we mix it up with some other uh, things like phosphatidylcholine, and that coats the particles, but they're still too big at that point. So then we take that whole solution and put it in an, an ultrasound. And ultrasound makes cavitations in the liquid that makes smaller and smaller particles. And the particles keep getting coated with a phosphatidylcholine. And so you get these really like, you know, almost like M&Ms, you know, you have the like the outer shell phosphatidylcholine on the inside, you have the little remedy. Now, it could be an anti lime it could be an anti toxin, anti inflammatory remedy it doesn't have to always be, you know, killing, it could be like relieving of different issues that are most are uh, the most important thing to treat in the patient. And so the patient then takes those orally, rectally, you know, other ways, uh, sometimes topically to get them into their system because that helps them to go, have their remedies penetrate more deeply into their joints, their brain, into their cells and get to the more hidden reservoirs of these, you know, bugs.
0: Okay, so then you then you said that, you know that you learned about this biofilm concept about a decade ago at the ILAE conference when it became a big thing Bio- uh, i learned
2: about biofilms way before that
0: <laughs> okay but- i'm sorry so it was really it, it was a big topic at the at the ILAS conference and you went and you were able to to learn more and participate in that discussion so just again, for our listeners, biofilm are the substances of, of what, you know, so what is, if you can just describe what is a biofilm, because you talked about these things coming out, the Lyme bacteria, viruses, parasites, et cetera, are coming out of the biofilm, causing a Herxheimer reaction, which is a worsening of symptoms due to these bugs coming out to play, right? So what exactly is a biofilm? If you can just explain that, please.
2: So the analogy I like to use is Ghostbusters, where like uh, Bill Murray encounters a ghost and they you know, he gets all covered in slime and there's other colleague come and find him and he's just sitting there in his goo. That's like what I call a biofilm, you know, you've been, you've been slimed. And they, a lot of research have been on biofilms, how they make, you know, pathogens within them, sometimes a hundred times more drug resistant. They can c- collaborate with other pathogens. So you have Single species biofilms, you have multiple species biofilms. It's like, you know, this like uh, toxic community or cabal that's you know, conspiring to, you know, live and survive at your expense. And so-, so there are different strategies, like, you know, to break up the biofilms, but I want to have more of a, a strategy that is able to work in the biofilm. Start to take down the bad actors, detox, reduce inflammation without having the patient have a severe reaction as a result.
0: Okay, so right there. So you don't want to bust the biofilm. You want to get inside the biofilm, decrease in the initial
2: the... phases. Right, the I initial want... phases. Right, but later phases, biofilms are fair game. But I,
0: but I think this just... is a really important topic, uh, Greg. I'm sorry, we haven't heard this before in the podcast. You want to get inside the biofilm, you want to decrease the pathogenic load in the biofilm, and then break it up. So we we as patients don't have as severe as a Herxheimer reaction and possibly even get worse, I think is what you're saying, correct?
2: Yeah, just because, you know, after seeing patients, unfortunately, have bad Herxes or have bad reactions after taking strong antibiofilm remedies, I'm like, I need to get my patients more functional because they need to be a parent, they need to be a you know provider, they need to be a, a kid, they don't need to be a, a patient for the next umpteen years going and trying stuff. So my mission is how do I get these patients more functional with the least amount of upset along the way?
0: And then what are some herbs that you were able to deliver in this microparticle remedy that are able to penetrate the biofilm and get rid of the bad things in there before actually breaking up the biofilm? Can you give us our listeners some ideas of the herbs and tools you use to do part one of the biofilm approach you described?
2: So the herbs that were effective against leptospirosis like early on are things like uh, forsythia fruit, uh, honeysuckle vine, uh, hotunia, smilax, uh, artemisia annua. Uh, Those are written about as having anti-spirochete or anti-leptospirosis properties, which is what some of the main ones I use with patients in you know powdered form liquid form and then ultimately in microparticle form
0: so why do you start as a powder and then a liquid and then microparticle is there is there well well, that was over time
2: that That, i started with the raw herbs then i went to powders and tinctures and then microparticles
0: so as you learned and you realized that these microparticles were the most effective you just kind of change your methodology as you learned more about these herbs
2: yeah that's, okay, that's kind of like being at nasty. you kind of have to like, you know, adapt and <laughs> overcome challenges on a, almost a weekly basis. So yeah, yeah.
0: and especially in this world of, of chronic Lyme disease, where it's never just Lyme, and there's there's really no common answer or common thread. So it's, it's important to be able to adapt and learn and find what works best for patients here. Right. So uh, talk to us more, I think I, I totally interrupted you, and I think it was important to go over those specifics, and thank you for that, Greg. You know, yeah. now, you, now you're starting to learn, okay, these microparticles are really powerful, you're able to start working with work with more patients, you're delivering these herbs in a microparticle remedy, and you're starting to have success. What else are you learning? What else are you doing to help your patients? And talk to us more about all these discoveries you're making in the chronic line community.
2: So, I have to think back kind of in time. Yeah. Um, my main strategy was herbals. And, you know, I always was attracted to essential oils and I always felt they had potential because of their uh, ability to be very penetrating. Uh, So I had a colleague of mine who I uh, actually worked with his wife in a, in a company years back. And I was staying over at his house, which is actually this recreation of this, like, 1800s Chinese house in in Oregon. And so we're sitting there and he said, I'm doing a class. Uh, Why don't you come down? And I said, yeah, sure. Why not? And he taught on this uh, strategy for treating chronic infections that was based in China over 1900 years ago called Gu Syndrome. So I'm like, oh my gosh, you are describing my patients to a T. And so he talked about different uh, herbal strategies, acupuncture, something called moxibustion, where you're actually taking ground up herb and putting it on needles or putting it on the patient and lighting it. And that releases the active compounds into the patient. And, uh, there's actually this, uh, been very helpful actually for Bartonella neuropathy patients. So I can go more detail on that in a little bit, but so, uh, I got this whole epiphany through hearing him go through this system, explain the different strategies. And he talked about, you know, back then there were the normal doctors and there were the goo syndrome doctors. And they have the patient with a chronic infection. They get sick on the normal remedies. They go to the goo doctors and they get better because the goo doctors realize that these infections produce toxins and you need to detoxify. You need to get the information down before killing stuff. And or they need to be at least a simultaneous strategy to implement because the patients get too sick, just creating more inflammation, releasing more toxins. And that's part of the the wellness uh, that they found got these patients well, more quickly. And so based on that, then there's other steps, like you got to rebuild their energy, you have to balance their heat, hot and cold. And if, you know, if you've been treating Lyme patients or been seeing no people in the Lyme community, you know, some of them talk about they're really cold. You know, I have patients, they come in and they're like 95 degrees and they're like, I sit in the hot shower for 20 minutes on full heat just to warm up. Or I turn my car's heater on and I sit there, my earrings are burning my ears and I'm still cold, <laughs> you know? Things is just, you know, there's just this, such a low body temperature. And I think Klinghardt talked about it at one conference how toxins are wicked up into the hypothalamus by the two little appendages that are on the bloodstream, and that disables the ability uh, in some patients to create fevers and heat up. And it was like, oh, huh, okay, so we need to detox the hypothalamus. Okay, well, how do you detox the hypothalamus? Well, okay, then there's different studies in China that show when you have like endotoxins in animal studies, herbs like scutellaria, which we now know is a great herb for Lyme and some co-infections, has a great detoxifying against bacterial endotoxins. Also, again, forsythia and honeysuckle and other ones like gardenia. Uh, So you learn about all these different properties studying herbal medicine because, you know, it's not just about killing infection, it's also about how do we you know, detoxify, drain the inflammation, replenish the energy, also help with harmonizing the emotions, because unfortunately, a lot of my patients, they have anxiety, they have depression, they have hopelessness, they have anger, they have frustration, sometimes all at once. And by knowing different remedies that may help, with supporting the healthy emotions in a person that has made the life uh, much easier, especially with patients with anxiety, you know, some of them just are like, you know, I'm the rock. And, you know, I was always people who would come to me and now I'm like, you know, freaking out. Or like one guy was like, he, I was working with him. He was like a, a construction worker. He had the, the Hummer, he had the muscles. I mean, he was like, it put two of me together. I make one of him. He was like kind of like one of those kind of like big guys and uh, about three months into working together, like building up his energy, helping his body, his joint pains, helping his brain. He goes to me, uh, can you help me with one thing? And I said, sure. I'm crying all the time, but I can't stop. And I'm like, oh, man, that sucks, you know? And I imagine at the time, you know, working construction, his colleagues are not going to be the most compassionate, understanding people to be around. So I, so I said, okay, well, let's see what's in there. So I kind of talked to him into like, you know, when it comes up, what situations comes up in? Well, like, I'll see this dog and I think it's lost and I think it start, start crying or, you know, it's just, you know, you know, it may have been like stuff that's just in there and there's just this outer trigger that just allows it to come out. So we talked more about like, okay, what is that? You know, what do you want He's like, I, I want to have more control of my emotions. And it's like, okay, great. So what does it mean that you don't have control over your emotions? And it's just like, you know, we, we dug into this and dug into this and uh, ultimately it came down to a belief that he doesn't deserve healing. And, well, I'm going to stop you there.
0: I'm going to stop you there, Greg, because that's a really, really, really important topic. He oh, didn't yeah. believe he deserves healing. I don't believe and,
2: that I deserve healing, and when he said that, he he burst into tears.
0: But that's really, really common in the Lyme community. People don't believe that that they are they deserve to heal, nor correct. are they able to heal, and therefore they don't heal. Correct. So I think that that false belief is a huge problem. So if you can just expand upon that a little bit more, because that's a really, really common thread on this Tick Bootcamp podcast.
2: Yeah. So what I did was I I said, hey, why don't you try this? Uh, way of like calling upon whatever you call the highest source of truth of healing and use whatever name or phrase. And so he's Catholic. And he said, okay, that's God. So I said, okay, repeat quietly yourself, invoke. There, there's this concept in Chinese medicine called Gan, which means you call upon the resources of the highest or heaven. And the, as you do that, you invoke And then you resonate with that invocation or the light or energy that comes and you receive. So he's repeating quietly to himself, God, God, God. And I'm just encouraging him, just keep doing it until you feel something in the place in you that feels like it doesn't deserve healing. So he's like, you know, crying, he's quietly or a little, you know, and then after about a couple minutes, he kind of, Stops crying, his face softens up, and he goes, kind of like in this little disoriented look in his eyes. I got the insight that there's enough healing for everybody, and it's okay to receive. And that was like a huge moment where that false belief broke for him. And it was just like, and so whenever he had the tears and felt ashamed, I just encourage him, just go and repeat the name or phrase you call the highest. And see, is that really true, you know, that you don't deserve healing or, you know, you, you're bad for crying in, in this, you know, at workplace or whatever, or whatever the different, you know, negative thoughts that come up. And as he would do that, he would go like, yeah, it only lasted like instead of like, you know, half an hour, it got down to 10 minutes and it got down to a minute and then it got down to seconds. So as he invoked and he received from his highest it's almost like he had more perspective. He cleared the negative belief and he began to see through the light of the most high.
0: Is that, is that the balancing energy component or am I, am I miscategorizing that term you used earlier, the balancing energy?
2: This is it's actually a tool I learned uh, when I used to work for a uh, management consulting leadership training firm called Lionheart. And this is what we do with CEOs and executive teams to help them come to finding a solution that wasn't at someone's expense, but it was for the benefit of everyone. So it's just a more intuitive, get in touch with what's that core place inside a person that's untouched by illness, that is you know, what you call their core essence, their you know divine essence or whatever you wanna call it, their inner wisdom and being bringing that forward con- to a conscious level so they can then look at things through that and see what is true from that perspective.
0: Okay, so then what is the the balanced energy? Cause you talked about people are just always hot, right? And, and they're in the shower and their ears are burning and they just, they're just, you know, whatever, right? So how, how do you address that? Because we hear that often too, there, there are a lot of what I call temperature dysregulation problems in the lawn community and on both extremes, right? Extreme, extreme, I'm always hot or I'm always cold. Is that yeah. where the balancing energy comes in? And if so, what do you do from a medicinal standpoint, an herbal standpoint, an essential oil standpoint to help your patients who have those types of symptoms?
2: So there's different classification of herbs and essential oils that have more warming tendencies or have more cooling tendencies. And so based on the person and their issues, say they're too hot. And often you see that in patients with Bartonella. And it could be when when heat shows up and when you look at it from a, like a Chinese medicine point of view, it's not always, you know, temperature heat. It could be rashes. It could be hot emotions like, you know, aggression or irritation. Uh, It could be redness on the tongue. It could mean they're bleeding or, you know, there's heat in the blood. So you can think of, there's many different manifestations of this heat and that often comes when you have a toxic illness that is the, a lot of the you know medical chinese medical texts are say toxins create heat in the blood or in the body and you can also see that with covid too and how they talk about in china covid has these toxins that create heat in the blood that then when they have too much heat it's like your blood gets cooked you create this hypercoagulation, what they call stagnant blood. So you get the blood clots, you get the thick blood. Uh, and so looking at you know, each patient to see, you know, do they show these signs? Is their history you know reflective of that? And then looking at, we then test individual herbs, which may help balance that out, cool down the heat, uh, and depending on where it is, sometimes a lot of patients have it in their liver, so they might get scutellaria, uh, they might get another herb, um, called lysomantia. They might get, uh, you know, there's what do you call it? milk thistle, uh, you know, there's lots of Western herbs that can help support the liver and not add heat to it. Heat may be an indication of a combination of toxicity and inflammation that's just overwhelming that organ.
0: Gotcha. So now you're in your career, you're learning that you can't just go and kill right away in many Lyme patients. You have to support the body. You have to detox. You have to drain the inflammation. You have to balance the energy, right? So these are all the things you're learning to do first before going after and killing the bacteria, viruses, et cetera, correct? So
2: this is what I learned from studying the goose syndrome with my colleague, uh, Dr. Heiner Fruoff. He's in Oregon. And I mean, this guy is like this Chinese medicine wizard. He like, you know, goes to China, takes people on these excursions in these like hidden valleys, and you go smell the herbs and get. <laughs> he's, you know, he's like this, yeah, you, know, you know, he doesn't look like a hippie, but he would be a great hippie, you know.
0: <laughs> so that, and, now you have you have this epiphany though, right? And, and then you start implementing it in your practice. Are you seeing that you're able to help more people and sustain the results that you weren't sustaining before?
2: Yeah in that the, it's a lot of different things coming together, the goose syndrome strategy, really having a lot more on board to help detox. And in the beginning, you know, really help a lot of patients, you know, in many different ways, they slept better, they have more energy, they're less brain fog. And then adding in like, you know, microparticle remedies later on that go deeper in and as antimicrobials or even as antitoxin or neurological regeneration remedies. You know, it's just a matter of, you know, there's remedies, but also how do you deliver them in a way so they get to where you want them to go? So that's, it's been kind of like adding on not only, because a lot of people know about the remedies, but how do you really get them into the brain? How do you really get them into the the biofilms without just blowing it open? How do you get them into the cells where these these bugs, toxins, metals are hiding? How do you then do that in a way that has the healing effect you want and then doesn't aggravate uh, side effects?
0: So Greg, I want to ask you about the intracellular component of Lyme disease and co-infections and things like that, because we do know that Lyme can, the Lyme bacteria Borrelia burgdorferi can change from an active, right, from an active spirochete to a cyst uh, to evade the immune system and evade antibiotics and, and evade herbs. So when this happens and the bacteria is very smart, it goes intracellular and it possibly changes shapes to avoid this microparticle remedy, what herbs are you using to penetrate the cell and get these non-mobile or stationary phases of the Lyme bacteria?
2: So when I think about like the cyst form, one of the things that immediately comes to mind is not necessarily using remedies there, because if they're in in this form, they're more in this protected state. So uh, I want to transform them out of that state. So one of the things that immediately, you know, comes up, especially in the chronic patients that have been struggling, you know, they live in Lyme, Connecticut, and they're like, you know, I've been having this for 40 years. And uh, so, knowing that there may have a lot of these cyst forms, then one of the things is just doing something called frequency-specific microcurrent. And there are frequencies in the, there, this is a FDA approved for pain relief. And there are also experimental frequencies for Lyme and co-infections and using those to say, okay, you can not only say, hey, I want to hear this anti-Lyme frequency, but you also have a targeting frequency. So I want to put these frequencies into blood cells because, you know, Lyme can hide in certain blood cells. We know that it can hide in other kinds of tissues. So let's put it into like different areas of the brain. And so it's just having this ability to kind of say, okay, is this creating a shift that is helping, you know, either reveal the hidden infection or is it, you know, something we need to go another strategy on?
0: All right, so give us a little bit more about this customized frequency-specific microcurrent. I think it's FSM, you said, right? So yeah. it does this, using this this technology, does it take the stationary phase of the bacteria and allow it to become an, into a spirochete form? Is that what it's doing? So then you can- So there's the no spirochete?
2: research on its ability. We haven't like put a dish, in a big microscope and then zapped it with these stuff and seen what happens. There's no research on this. This is more like, you know, NASA brain going, okay, I need to get this stuff or I can kill it. How do I affect a state change in it? So I'm going to do try it with frequencies. I'm going to try it with remedies. Also, I'm going to try it with things called homeopathics. So we have multiple, you know, and essential oils too. So, you know, it's all at this point, you know, and until I get some uh willing to fund that kind of research, this is all like theoretical.
0: But so many of these line treatments are not proven out by official scientific studies, but they're accurate in helping so many patients get their lives back, right? So if you can explain the thought process, you know, you said your NASA brain, right? So in your NASA brain, what is this customized frequency specific microcurrent? Like what exactly is the technology? And what caused you to believe that using this, it can convert a stationary form of the bacteria to an active form to then go and kill it in the spirochete form. You know, can you walk us through that thought process for us?
2: So you can think of uh, cells, organisms having different frequencies they resonate at. Like when you go to sleep, you know, your brain is is vibrating at you know maybe ten times a second or even less than that in different sleep states, and. Each individual like tissue, uh, according to the microcurrent has a frequency or frequencies that it resonates at. So using that information, you have a, a way to say, hey, I want to target the large intestine or I want to target the liver or I want to target the forebrain because, you know, executive functioning is out to lunch. And so what do I want the positive change to happen there? And so we use an experimental scanning system, which also uses electrical frequencies to scan the body for biggest issues, over a thousand different infections, toxins, inflammatory compounds, a hundred regions of the brain, functional medicine issues, Chinese medicine issues, homeopathy issues. Is this your
0: electrodermal scan? Is that what you're referring to?
2: Yeah. And that is something that actually takes two hours to do with patients. And we're based on that information, you know, you know, my job, one of my jobs was integrating, I worked in spacecraft integration and testing. So I'm used to dealing with lots of different kinds of systems and making them work together. So it's like a person has all these different things going on in their body. They're a very complex systems all working together. Now taking that, we can then take the data and say, okay, we know certain things about, the gut brain relationship. We know certain things about inflammation. We know certain things about infections and how they skew the immune system. And so based on that information, we make hypotheses that say, okay, we need to really help this person in their midbrain also heal their gut.
0: Greg, I'm sorry to interrupt again, but if this electrodermal scan is identifying parasites, Lyme, co-infections, mold, mycotoxins, viruses, to- uh, metals, biofilms, et cetera, how are you identifying which section of the body to treat? Because you mentioned it's you know the, the, the front brain or the liver or the kidney. How are you right. connecting the electrodermal scan to the customized frequency-specific microcurrent used to then address those parts of the body? Because if I have Lyme, we don't know where my body it is, right? Or if I have mold, we may not know where my body it is or, or am I wrong in that assumption? You know, I'm just trying to understand how are these connected together to use the scan to then connect that information back to the microcurrent to treat parts of the body using this frequency therapy.
2: Yeah, so the scan gives us what are called st- stress you can pick up in certain areas of the body. It has not been approved by the FDA for ICD-10 diagnosis. So you can't take the scan results and then go and get, you know, insurance reimbursement and things like that. However, the FDA has worked with the company and says, "Hey, you can use this to make a educated guess about what's going on in the patient. We'll approve you for that." So, based on that, we take that data and you know run it through our. I have a colleague of mine that I work with on this, and come up with you know what are the areas that are showing up as inflamed. You know, what are showing up as toxic. What are showing up as you know, and what are the most likely infections that are perhaps showing up in the scan in those areas. And based on that, we come up with a hypothesis that could look like, okay, this person has uh, Ehrlichia, they've got herpes human virus six, and they've got marcons in their nose. And so based on that, we'll custom create treatment remedy uh uh for that person because
0: but that 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 microcurrent that that customized frequency specific microcurrent the fsm yeah that's actually is that killing pathogens or is it just supporting organs and you know the body system what is it actually doing is it killing or just supporting or both
2: so fsm is only approved by the fda for relieving pain
0: okay but i mean in Forget no. about the FDA. If, you know What, what, okay. what is yeah, your yeah. so NASA there are no studies that
2: say okay, here's this plate of Borrelia, zap it with these frequencies. Okay, they're dead. <laughs> we don't have that, but there you could think of, know, um, yeah, being i I was an audiophile for a while uh, before I had a family, and so you can think of it as you know a life form like a pathogen is kind of like resonating at a certain frequency. And frequency specific microcurrent is kind of like the inverse, like the noise cancellation of that pathogen's frequency. And when you give it to them, it has a damaging effect on that pathogen or toxin. It transmutes it, changes it, it damages it, it whatever makes it less harmful. Uh, but the research isn't there, and just putting that out front. This is no all- and,
0: and look Greg I I'm, I you know where we here to, Rick Rich and I at we camp we're really supportive of these therapies you know so much of science is evolving over time, right? So we know things today that that anecdotally are working and saving lives, but haven't been proven out through official scientific studies yet. And a lot of these things are non-invasive, non-low risk and very helpful to the patient. That's why I'm asking you, because this what you're discussing could truly have such a positive impact on so many people that are listening to this podcast. And that's why I'm trying to cut through the... Bureaucratic red tape that you're bound by, if that makes sense. and I'll, I'm saying that, not you, right? So I yeah, appreciate you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you can say all you want.
2: Here. I just I have to be careful about what I say. <laughs> yep.
0: So again, I just, you know, I, where, this is, this is really cool stuff. Now, the scan, you said it takes two hours. So, what describe the scan? Am I are you? Am I sitting there and you're just am, and I'm like in an MRI machine? Are you taking a no, wand? No, no. You, you Have, have your, your hand
2: line? on a uh, like a blue uh, a blue mouse, a big blue mouse, and it d- uses galvanic skin response. Uh, testing to it, it enters a frequency into your system and then reads the response back so it's kind of like sonar you get pinged and then what how strong was the return signal what does that tell you about what it's looking for so here's Borrelia burgdorferi or here's you know uh, Babesia WA1 or here's Bartonella Colerae, and then you know it's like woo, what happens what happens and then that also looking at like you know what interleukin inflammatory cytokines are elevated or tumor necrosis factor alpha what regions of the brain are lighting up as you know inflamed potentially infected toxic how does that correlate with other things like neurotransmitters how does that correlate with the gut health and so it's just a lot of integrating several you know medical models and trying to come up with like ones that make the most sense and helping the person to get better and dealing with the most important things first.
0: So these frequencies are like languages, right? So I have I speak Chinese and I'm gonna speak, say hello in Chinese. And if you say hello back, I know that you speak Chinese, right? <laughs> if I if I have if I am sending a Lyme signal saying hello in Lyme disease language, and it says hello back, you you're suspecting Lyme disease potentially. And this is what it's like with the frequencies. You are looking for a frequency response back. And then you can target this FSM to then go address and sort of, you know, cancel out the noise cancellation component of taking the pathogen and getting rid of it, essentially, right? That's the idea behind these two items, correct? Yeah. Okay. That
2: would be, yeah. But not only are there like pathogen, toxin, there's also healing frequency. So a person has demyelination because of their MS. How do you target the nerve sheath to get the toxins out, get the information down, and promote regeneration and healing. So this is all experimental as I, you know.
0: <laughs> no, but this is really cool stuff. So you're saying if somebody has damage from a tick-borne illness, which many people do, some people have yeah. nerve damage, some people have neurological damage, you can identify potential damage to the human body and organs like the brain, and then find frequencies to help heal that part of the body is what you're saying. In addition to identifying pathogens and canceling out the pathogens through this FSM uh, technology, correct? So
2: it's a hypothesis from the data. (laughs) It is not a diagnosis that you can use for your insurance (laughs) company.
0: NASA brain says, that's how we should start every question there. The the NASA logic, right? But I mean, no, it's, it's, it, this is really, and again, you've proven this out in your practice by using these hypotheses that you've come up with through your studies and your peers and your colleagues, and then applying these low risk, methodologies to your patients and you see success right so that's how you know these things are working because you're seeing success in your patient patient population right yes okay so now i really want to talk to you more about essential oils because i have to tell you a, a good friend of ours uh Margo gunning her 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 a, her aunt her mother's best friend is a huge 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 fan of yours uh, and she's obsessed with essential oils and she's studied your work for quite a while So she told me, I had to ask you about essential oils and the role they play in healing Lyme disease and a wide variety of other things in the human body. So let's just geek out over essential oils for a little bit here. Tell us how you got into studying essential oils and the value they can play. Because I have to tell you, I still to this day am very anxious about taking an essential oil and ingesting it. I've used essential oils topically. I've diffused them, but I'm really nervous to ingest them because you read such conflicting information online that they can be very dangerous potentially. So... How would you get into this world and talk to us about the efficacy in treating Lyme disease and other conditions in the human body?
2: So I met a naturopath uh, uh, from Alabama, and he had studied a French system where they use essential oils internally, medicinally. And he came up with some guidelines, and so I shared them with me, and I started using those but I still didn't feel comfortable because again, the research and again, you're, these are very strong remedies and people would hurts I mean, they would hurt on them, you know? And I'd tell them, okay, just start with one drop and then go like, nah, more is better. And they do a big dose and they'd be like, ah! And I'm like, what did I say? <laughs> and I'm like, be slow, be careful, but you know, it's hard when you're wanting to get better quicker. And so then more research started to come out, Uh, There was a book uh, published called essential oil safety, second edition by a leader, one of the leaders in like the essential oil community um, by Robert Tisserand. And in there he goes over what are internal safe dosing limits for many essential oils. I mean, the, the book is, you know, probably like two inches thick. There's, you know, uh, several hundred essential oils in there. So I was just like, aha, <laughs> that's what I need. That's what I've been looking for, man.
0: Can you repeat the name of the book again, just for our listeners? Essential oil safety, second edition by Tisserand. So, and again, this, this tells you the safe doses of essential oils that you can take. Of and some
2: ingest. of most of, of many of the essential oils. Some don't have it. You know, it's based upon uh, lots of different like research, uh, clinical use, what's too much use and have called reactions, toxicity issues, things like that. He's really done a a great uh, service to the essential oil community with this publication. And so based on that, and then looking at, you know, the research out of Hopkins and other institutions that have said, hey, these oils kill Bartonella or these ones kill the stationary form of Borrelia or the biofilm and blah, blah, blah. So based on that, we then test patients so, hey, the scan shows, your, your hip blood work shows, you've got you know Borrelia and Babesia and Bartonella and whatever. The scan shows this. So what are the essential oils that we know are effective in lab conditions against these infections? So one, we know the remedy. So then how do we deliver it into the patient in a way that it gets to where we want it to go? So in the beginning, we give patients uh, a very uh, lower dose of essential oils mixed with a carrier oil. because we know they're very penetrating, they can really blow people up. because we've had that happen with patients not listening to slow dosing recommendations. And so based on their doing, working with that, and how they react and how they, you know, do, then at some point, when they're able to detox, they're less inflamed, they're more functional, their brains working, then we'll transition to other delivery methods like microparticles or enemas or you know things like that. So
0: There's when you say other... micro when you say microparticles so the microparticles are only, aren't only applicable to herbs they're also applicable to essential oils so that yes. that's
2: they're so so applicable how... to supplements they're applicable to herbs and oils yep.
0: So how does that work? So you get an essential oil I'm thinking of like you know I I know like the the MLMs, I can buy doTERRA, Young Living, et cetera, and buy those essential oils. How does it work? How do you get an essential oil and turn it into a microparticle and get it delivered? I haven't heard of that before. What's the process so for that?
2: We buy essential oils that are made from organic or wildcrafted crafted source materials. They also have a certificate of analysis, which is very important because not only it shows you it doesn't have pesticides and herbicides and stuff like that, but it also shows what active compounds are in there. And we buy sometimes a liter at a time. So we can't go to these, you know, vendors that only sell the little bottles. And based on the research, based on their, you know, their analysis, then we'll feel comfortable with buying those and using those with patients. And there's different studies that show that, that compared like conventionally grown, like uh, orange essential oil compared to organically grown uh, Orange essential oil conventional had more pesticides and herbicides in it. So we're like, hey, no no brainer there. <laughs> Organic.
0: <laughs> Wildcraft. So these essential oils, though. So we we had a gentleman on our podcast about a year ago, John Tubbs, who got his lime into remission using an essential oil protocol. So do you yep. believe it that essential oils are that powerful? Where if using the right combination of essential oils in the right sequence that it can actually bring somebody to remission from Lyme and co-infections?
2: Yeah. So basically we're using the same strategy with essential oils. We're using the same strategy with herbs, using the same strategy with treatment and microcurrent, detox, drain inflammation, rebuild the energy, clear the pain symptoms, calm the emotions, now the person's more functional, they can handle a die-off more or better. They're not like, a, they're not, you know, full to the brim with stuff that they, from treatment or previous treatments, they can handle it. Their body can drain it out and dispose of it without a big reaction. So that's, then we ramp in the microparticle, anti-Lyme, anti-co-infection, any parasite, any virals, any fungal mold remedies, whether it be essential oils or herbals or supplements.
0: So you have a whole framework. It's not just essential oils. You're gonna use microparticle essential oils, microparticle herbs. At first, you're gonna detox. You're gonna drain out that inflammation. You're gonna do all that emotional work then. So you, you really have a whole phased out approach from you know almost a sequential process of addressing tick-borne illness patients that you've built out over your years of experience, it sounds like.
2: Yeah, well, a lot of it's based on the Goose Syndrome strategy because this is what worked 1900, almost 2000 years ago in China to get these chronic infection patients. They probably had malaria or dysentery, cholera, things like that. But still, those same strategies are working today with these chronic patients. Because, you know, one of my patients, they went to 14 different Lyme-literate providers. Another one, 46 doctors. You know, it's just like, man...
0: So I do want to ask you, you were talking about the emotional part, right? The balancing of, uh, balancing of energy and all those things, but so many people in the Lyme community express how, when they got sick with chronic Lyme disease or a tick borne illness, their emotions go haywire. And I never was depressed before. Now I'm depressed. I never had anxiety and I had sudden onset anxiety and I'm, I'm a mess. And we you know you talk a lot about the HPA axis, the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis, mm-hmm. you know, the role your thyroid plays, your mitochondria play and how all those things together can contribute to your emotions and having that kind of different, different or altered emotional state. So talk us about your work and research in that and how you combat that piece of your chronic patients that you deal with.
2: So one of the things I see over and over again is that patients, even though they may not have a huge amount of fatigue, they have depleted mitochondrial energy. And that is kind of like, like a core cellular energy that almost always needs to be nourished, fed, replenished, and so we use different remedies, uh, supplements that uh, are things like NAD plus. Uh, also, uh, there's a product from a Mitosynergy which has a copper niacin chelate. You know, there's CoQ10, uh, alpha lipoic acid, things like that, and testing the patient for those different remedies, we come up with which ones seem to be most optimal for them. Like I had one woman that I saw recently, she was basically going downhill every day. She was like, I feel like I'm going to, you know, her husband asked, are you going to live? And she goes, I don't know. And so she was like, you know, I, I got to do something because the Lyme doc, the naturopath, the, all the other people, it's not helping. I'm I'm going down. So she was she was so weak she couldn't even sit up by herself. And you know she came in. She has this uh, guy who's uh, actually in chiro- studying chiro- ch- chiropractic now, <laughs> helping her as her assistant. He's like he's got you know big muscles, so he can like you know take her around and do stuff. And uh, recently she said, you know she's been come, probably coming about two or three weeks. She goes. I uh, had another episode where I felt really weak and I took that mito whatever product uh, you did. And after I took it, I had enough energy to sit up by myself. And it was just like night and day. It's like a light switch. That really showed me how for her, the mitochondria in her just need this nourishing and feeding. And I see it also not only in Lyme, but also chronic fatigue patients. It's like the mitochondria are get hit and I mean, I take mitochondrial remedies because I'm like, I, I figure I, mean, I don't I don't I don't have Lyme and when I scan myself and do stuff like that. Lyme doesn't show up or co-infections. I mean, I have maybe a little mycoplasma, uh, but that, you know, I'm like, I got to feed mine because I'm seeing all these people maybe, you know, that have depleted mitochondria. And so those are the strategies. Also, it's just detoxing the cells because you know, I think Klinghart talks about when you get aluminum in the cells, it compromises mitochondrial energy production. So we use different remedies like a microparticle zeolite, frequency specific microcurrent to begin to help the cells to detox out the metals.
0: So these are binders to pull the metals out of your cells and and flush out the the heavy metals in your system, correct? Yeah.
2: Yeah. And then also the microcurrent too is an electrical frequency to help Expel, detox those metals too.
0: Gotcha. Now, is, is there a connection? So, you talked about the mitochondria and the energy and the fatigue and people not being able to sit up, but talk to us more about the HPA axis, the hypothalamus, pituitary, adrenal axis, and the hormonal element of it, right? Because hormones are really, really an important part of Lyme disease, and people don't understand exactly why this happens. You know, I, I can tell you, I never in my life ever had a, an anxiety issue. And when I got sick, I started to have these weird waves of anxiety that I've never experienced in my, you know, my 20 plus years of life until I got Lyme disease. So, you know, for me, you know, why does that happen in a Lyme patient? What what goes on in the body that causes that? So uh,
2: it could be often in the beginning, it's the toxicity from the infections and that gets through the blood can get into the hypothalamus. Because the hypothalamus has two little things that stick in the blood that measure, you know, different qualities of a temperature and other things like that. And unfortunately, that's a doorway for stuff from the blood to get right in there. And as it becomes toxic, inflamed, it doesn't work as well. And then you get the temperature regulation issues. You get, again, then it doesn't, isn't able to regulate the anterior pituitary as well because now it's like, Hey man, I'm, I'm, I'm disoriented, man. I'm toxic. I'm inflamed. I, I'm not giving you the right signals. And so therefore the pituitary then can't communicate as well to the adrenals uh, to help support that energy cycle. And, you know, if the person is depleted in their adrenals then that'll often pull on the thyroid and create a hypothyroid or, you know, perhaps a Hashimoto's like, Condition, but once you begin to use different, uh, like, well, microcurrent, you can send frequencies into the hypothalamus, the anterior pituitary, the adrenals, the thyroid to detox, reduce inflammation, clear infections. So that's one of the main really super targeted ways. There's also uh, animal glandulars made from, like, lambs from New Zealand, which are supposedly really clean and pure that we use, um, and then using microparticle remedies that people hold in their mouth that go into their brain, uh, or essential oils that go into the brain that are any toxin, any microbial, any inflammatory, any biofilm, to begin to help ease the burden, you know, those aren't as targeted as microcurrent, but we're trying to get them in the right neighborhood by just holding them and having them go into the nervous system.
0: All right, so you've mentioned Dr. Klinghart a lot in this interview, and we know Dr. Klinghart studied mold very heavily, and we know mold and Lyme go hand in hand. So what are your thoughts on mold? Is it really as bad as people think it is? If somebody who's sick with chronic Lyme disease is living in a moldy house, do you really think that's as life-altering or debilitating as many people think it is?
2: I have one of my patients, um, Lyme, she's in the Midwest, and she's like, you know, took her about about a year and a half where she felt like, Hey, I'm I'm not, I don't need treatment anymore. I'm doing really well. I have my blood test results are good from our Lyme doc. She was seeing someone in Chicago and, you know, doing really great. Lo and behold, she tells me this later, her dog chews a hole in a drain pipe outside the house, which then the water, instead of going away from the house, out the drain pipe goes under the house into the crawl space. And she starts having anxiety bouts, especially when she's in her bedroom, which is right where under the house where the mold was. And she doesn't know why she's going like, know, oh, what's going on? This isn't like lime, you know? And so they eventually found uh, through a home inspector, like you got a really bad mold problem down here. And she's, they moved out of their house, had it remediated, repaired. And she's like, you know, this was as bad, if not worse than Lyme. And over and over again, when I see patients that uh, they're like, you know, I'm just not feeling that much better. You know, it's okay. I get better for a while, but then I I get worse and it just go back. They're not really able to have a significant improvement. Seven out of 10 times. Oh, we found mold in the house or, I every time I go to, to to you know church or synagogue or whatever, I feel like I get weepy, I get all this stuff, you know, must be something there, you know, and, and it's like this repeated toxic exposures that are just tanking their ability to, you know, detoxify, get better, maintain their energy. So mold's huge. I mean, but this,
0: but this patient though got over Lyme disease and was doing well, was in remission. And it sounds like she had a family, but she was impacted very negatively by the mold exposure, but it sounds like others in her home weren't, which, is, which isn't uncommon. Many people tell us they have a husband or a significant other or children who live in the same home, aren't impacted, but they are. So why do you think some people are more susceptible to mold even once they've overcome Lyme disease like your patient?
2: Well, Dr. Shoemaker found with his patient's that uh, when he did the human leukocyte antigen testing, that 25% of his patients don't detoxify mold or Babesia or other toxic algae toxins very well. And so often that's one of the underlying issues uh, to why some people, like I, I have, I'm near like an Amish community, uh, not that far, and you know they' the, some of them don't have power in their house. So they don't air condition their house and as you may know, you have a very we, it's very humid here on the east coast and imagine what that does to a house that's not air conditioned. You get mold growing wherever like in the basement or other places of the house. So a lot of these you know communities have homes and families that are just lime mold as their main issues. Some of them, you know, are able to do well and work and do stuff and others are just more vulnerable and they get hit really hard.
0: So talk to us about mast cell activation syndrome. We know you've talked about this before in other speeches that you've done and talks that you've done. We've heard about this a lot. This seems to go hand in hand with Lyme disease as well we've had many people not be able to eat, not be able to be around any kind of chemical and literally be homebound because of their severe MCAS reaction. So what are your thoughts on MCAS? you think it's something that's triggered by Lyme disease? you think it's something that's sort of parallel to Lyme? And how do you address it in your patients?
2: I think it's probably, it could be a combination of triggered by Lyme, parallel to Lyme, uh, genetics, um, It's a combination of multiple factors. Mold exposure, definitely. Uh, Chronic mold exposure, definitely. Uh, And so, you know, it's basically the person becomes so inflamed and toxic that they become really sensitive to any sort of stimulus. It could be drinking a glass of water and that triggers a reaction. It doesn't have to be, you know, getting exposed to pollen or getting a new tick bite. And so it's really about. You know, high levels of histamine. I mean, like, I mean, I remember this one uh, woman. I was presenting her case study, uh, and it was just like, "Oh yeah, she was the one with the histamine that was like ten times higher than any other patient." And it was just like, "Oh my gosh!" I almost fell off my chair when I would remember sure her, her reading came up in the scan, and I'm like, "Oh, that's pretty." exceptional. And so the strategy for her was, we need to get your histamine down. We need to get your triggers down, whatever it's environmental, infectious, toxic, whatever. So hydrogen inhalation has been shown in different studies uh, to reduce mast cell activation. So this is taking, we have uh, water we get from our uh, research lab here that is in put through electrolysis and uh, broken up into hydrogen and oxygen. And the patient then breathes that in. It's a sub explosive level. So we haven't had people like, you know, have any incidents with that. And what happens is hydrogen is a very small molecule and it'll go in and it neutralizes, reduces multiple inflammation compounds that you often see elevated in Lyme and mold and mast cell patients. Also, you know, Given the study and the research, it also has anti-mycotoxin properties in in, in other study. So it has this great, it's almost like this, like, help calm the system down. I have a colleague of mine who runs an IV clinic in Chicago. And she was saying, hey, you know, I just find my patients just are much calmer doing this stuff. And they just, they get their IVs, they hook them up to hydrogen, and they're just, like, having a great time, you know. I've had patients come in and, you know, they have a full on, uh, you know, they're, they're about to jump out of their skin with anxiety and, you know, or brain, severe brain fog. They do the hydrogen, you know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes later, they're like, oh, I'm better. Uh, uh, you know, you just see, you don't see this anxiousness in there etched in their face. It's just like the softening, the eyes aren't darting around. It's like calming them down, calming the whole system down. Then also there's microcurrent frequencies for lowering histamine and inflammation compounds. So whenever we have patients that have mast cell, it's really about let's, they're, they're just flooded with stuff, whether it be inflammation or histamine or whatever, we need to drain that out. And then also there's different uh, remedies that uh, lower histamine, uh, DAO, which is diamine something ox. <laughs> Yeah, my, I have to look all, look up the what that what that means. So anyway, um, the real uh, b- name of that, and then also um, there's different essential oils in different studies which lower mast cell activation, like lavender. Lavender is like one of our. We buy like you know, I'd buy like ten gallon thing of that if I could. Uh, well, maybe not. Maybe just a gallon. Uh, and because that has helped a lot of these patients, and they can do it. Uh, either some of them are so sensitive, they have it in a sealed vial and they place it in their pocket, and they can feel the effects of it without it provoking too strong a reaction.
0: So if they take lavender, put it in a sealed vial, put it in we their we put it in a
2: sealed vial, they take it home, they put it under their pillow, they put it in their pocket, and that is enough for them.
0: And that helps with MCAS and histamines and inflammation.
2: That helps them. They feel a positive healing effect from it. Wow. In terms of calming things down. And then eventually they may try it topically, a little, like a little bit with carrier oil on the bottom of their foot. And then, you know, then they work it up to getting it more internal. But, you know, it's very, it's like baby steps with Hmm. these patients. And like, what will help calm down this flood of inflammation?
0: So Rich is going to talk to you shortly about your Heal for Real community and all the cool stuff you're doing to help the the chronic illness community and specifically the Lyme community that follows our podcast but my final question for you, Greg, before Rich picks up is I want to learn more about mycoplasma because we read a recent study that, that 75% of Lyme patients are infected with mycoplasma. And many people think it's really not that big of a deal, but others argue that it can be very serious, especially when dealing with that end Lyme disease. So if you can first tell us what is mycoplasma and what are your thoughts on its, its severity and how it impacts people that are also battling Lyme disease?
2: So mycoplasma is is one of, if not the smallest bacteria. Uh, It there's you know many different strains. Uh, You don't have to get it by a tick bite. You could go into a public uh, venue and someone sneezes, and they release a cloud of mycoplasma out of their lungs. And unfortunately, if you're around, you can breathe it in. Now, hopefully, your immune system can recognize that and then not let it infect. But you know. If patients are immune compromised, then they may not be able to fight it off. And so often you like mycoplasma hominis, mycoplasma pneumonia are some of the main strains that we see in patients when we scan them and also assess, is this at a sufficient strength to be a primary thing that we need to treat? So based on that computer model that or of the scan, we can then apply different remedies to see, okay, what happens when you take out the mycoplasma? Do the other things go down? Often what we find there, there's, there's one or two main infections that are like the, the main big, you know, bad guy. And that by reducing them, then all the other ones seem to reduce in severity. So it's just part of the scan is like figuring out what, Are the most likely one primary ones that we need to go after first when we start going after infection. And so, you know, mycoplasma are very small. I often see them in patients with autoimmune illnesses like rheumatoid arthritis and lupus. You know, and, you know, Garth Nicholson, Dr. Garth Nicholson, he's done extensive research on like Gulf War syndrome and, you know, other neurological illnesses as having a mycoplasma component. So it, it is a big deal, but it's like, you know, you can't treat all the infections all at once in these patients, especially because it's too much die off. It's too much inflammation for them to handle. You really want to be able to isolate what are the most likely big ones that you need to treat first, once they can detox, once they can drain the inflammation once they have more mitochondrial energy, once they you know, have more brain functioning and they can handle things. So it, one, it's one of the players, sometimes it's a primary, oftentimes it's more like a secondary uh, issue unless the person has like an autoimmune like presentation or illness.
1: So Greg, one of the things we've discovered here during the course of our almost 300 podcast episodes is that we have wow, to wow treat- 300. You guys rock. We are uh, we are rocking uh, with so many cool people, including now Greg Lee. So hey. uh, we we've learned that uh, you can't just uh, you know you are not going to heal if you don't treat the entire person, right? You have to treat the, the spirit. You have to treat uh, the the body. You have to treat the mind. It, it, there's a, there's an entire approach you have to take. And you've talked to us a lot about mindset today and, and emotions. You've talked a lot about the different skill sets that people can acquire. Now, talk to us about network and what uh, you folks over at the Lyme Research and Healing Center are doing with creating a network for folks who are going through a Lyme disease journey. So, uh, I really find that you know,
2: having you know worked for over 25 years with chronic infection patients that you can get significant improvement much more quickly because I did the protocols that I had available at the time and they were like, they were okay, they were good, but you know the patient would have the shoulder that wouldn't be better or the brain fog that wouldn't improve or the fatigue. And I found that I needed to go deeper than the protocols. And so that's when I started to say, okay, how do I share these results that may not be fitting into a protocol but are really having great results in these patients that have seen you know, 12 different Lyme docs or naturopaths or herbalists and still are struggling with these different things. So it really, you know, given my geeky NASA background, you know, we would use uh, electronic analysis of satellites to figure out issues and resolve them. So it was just like, hey, we can do the same thing here. And based on that, then we can come up with a more targeted remedy and treatment program. So the community is really about how do I share the benefits of that knowledge and that wisdom with people who are looking for how to treat their patients more effectively, how to get better more quickly. So that's why we created this community called Heal for Real. And we do weekly trainings in there where we break down a, a topic like this month was Lyme detox. And so the first week, we do what are the basics? And then the second week, we do a case study of, you know, here's someone who really struggled with detoxing. Uh, and one of the things that this guy, he had really bad brain fog and he really struggled and he went and saw. Uh, you know, one of the top Lyme docs in the country, and found out that every remedy that he was taking made it made him bedridden. He just couldn't take the medications. He couldn't even take the natural remedies. The only thing he could take was a little bit of allison, and that wouldn't flatten him out. And so it was just like he was just so toxic and had so many blocks to his detoxing. When he came to me, he was like, "Can you help me?" And I'm like, "Yeah, I think so." So we used different treatments like microcurrent, like cupping, cupping was huge for this guy. Uh, That's one of the things where we actually put suction cups on and then take them off needle, put the cups back on and you pull out this toxic inflamed coagulated uh, blood out of the person. And with this guy, when we did him on his head, he was just like, my brain was clear for weeks after you did that and nothing else had done that. And he was, you know, he owned a business, he has providing for his family, and he was just afraid that, you know, I'm just not going to be able to make it, you know, I can't function in my brain. And it was just, you know, having the right detox remedies that can quickly help his brain to function, help him to he eventually got to a point where, hey, I'm, I, my brain's working off, I want to sell this business. <laughs> and he was able to sell it and have, you know, be successful that way. And so, you know, it was a, it was a great success story using different detox methods, giving detox remedies. And eventually as he got more functional, then more antimicrobial like homeopathics and herbals and essential oils uh, to help maintain him. Cause he, he doesn't live, he lives probably about four or five hours away from us. So.
1: So who is this network available to and how can folks join uh, the network and, 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 Learn yeah. from the various tools that you're making available. Yeah, so we have
2: a community called LimeResearchCenter.com and in there we're going to create a special for uh, Tick Bootcamp listeners uh, that uh, LimeResearchCenter.com forward slash Tick Bootcamp. No spaces, no dashes, just all letters together. And if you go there, you can get a special way to sign up and get your first month for free. Uh, it's, uh, we charge uh, an annual or a monthly fee, and it's like $40 a month or $400 for the year. And we'll give you your first month free uh, if you sign up. Uh, and we, there's a minimum of a three-month initial. And in that, we're giving weekly trainings, like I mentioned, the basics, case studies, And then also, what are the demonstrations of the different properties of the different remedies and treatments? So a lot of it is like, oh, yeah, how do you use this remedy? How do you use, well, what delivery method, how is that, you know, able to produce the results in the case study? And then, you know, this week, actually just right, uh, this week we did, what are the top 16 detox methods? And that's all, all of our, this and our previous trainings are also available when someone gets to sign up and they can get to over 40 trainings that we've done previously up to this point. In addition to the new monthly stuff that we're putting out. And then we have a community and we're like, Hey, what do you want to learn next month? We're not telling them it's really what the biggest needs are in the community. Uh, and really tailoring training to those biggest needs.
1: So when folks uh, join this community, they will then be able to give you input into what their needs are and you're designing your training around what the community is collectively asking for as you move forward.
2: Yes, it's not meant to give medical advice or tell people what to do because we can't do that unless they're a patient and it doesn't make them a patient. This is more for saying, hey, these are remedies and treatments that are helping patients that may be like you. You need to go, before making any changes, consult with your medical providers just, you know, to keep our cells safe and uh, make sure that people, you know, they're becoming aware of these remedies like, you know, uh, essential oils or the treatments like hydrogen or, you know, these are making a big difference in, mast cell, neurolime, Bartonella, and so on. So that's yes,
1: really... So you're offering folks tools so they can it, develop their skill set and they could use this information uh, in conjunction with working with their practitioner to improve uh, and, I guess, expand the options, the treatment options that may be available to them.
2: Yeah. And also there are practitioners in there also who are working with patients in the community that are then using these with their patients to get results.
1: So of course, now that's, the, that's the, uh, the, I guess, the scaled version of working with your practice. How could folks work with you at the Lyme Research and Healing Center if they wanted to take the next step and have uh, have a closer relationship with you?
2: So there's the lymeresearchcenter.com forward slash treatment, which explains what are the different services that we offer. And then at the bottom, there's a form on that page which says, Tell us a little about your situation. You know, how we, how can we help you? And that way we then get that and then reach out to the people who submit that. You know, that people can call us uh, on our number, uh, 301-228-3764. They can go and, you know, those are the, the main ways that people inquire about how, how, you know, we may be able to help them.
1: Now, is the care that's offered or the services that are offered by uh, by the Wine Research and Healing Center, are they all in person or do you have remote options or is it a combination of the two? So uh, according to my licensing
2: board, I need to see people for the first appointment and then I can work more remotely with them. However, many of the treatments uh, like microcurrent, hydrogen, cupping do require people to come into the office uh, unless they find a practitioner near them that is able to provide those services. So we're able to work somewhat that way. And also, you know, if people want to do a mainly remedy-based, then we can work with them, you know, with creating a remedy plan for them to help increase their, you know, mitochondrial energy, detox, fight infections, drain inflammation, and so on.
1: So you've been really generous with your time. Our listeners, I know, are going to be you know, thrilled, uh, to learn all that you're, you're teaching in this, uh, in this great podcast. Uh, so we're going to let you go, but I do have to ask you the final question that we ask every one of our guests in the food camp podcast and God forbid somebody that you love came walking into your office right after this podcast and they had a tick biting them. What would you recommend that they do so they wouldn't have to go on a chronic Lyme disease journey?
2: Well, to one, they, have they taken the tick out? So take the tick out, save it, get it tested. Uh, And then based on what's in the tick, you can make different uh, find practitioners that are willing to treat you prophylactically uh, based on that. And also be open to the treatments and remedies that aren't just standard care of just taking doxycycline or antibiotics, but that there are other uh, remedies, treatments and support communities out here like we have for here and Heal for Real, but also with Lyme support groups that you can get, you know, some people that you connect with that, you know, that can help you make more informed treatment decisions.
1: Greg we thank you so much for taking time out of your really busy schedule to uh, share uh, so much uh, of this brilliant information with the folks in the Tick Camp community. And we really thank you for all the great work that's being done at the Lyme Research and Healing Center. So thank you, Greg, for all your good work.
2: Uh, It's been an honor. Thank you, Rich and Matt for having me on. And I I look forward to helping your community however I can.
0: Thank you for listening to our Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Greg Lee. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Greg, please visit his website at goodbyeline.com. Second, if you've enjoyed this episode of our Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends on social media. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick Byte blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at tickbootcamp.com/slash-byte to view our blueprint. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on your podcast platform of choice. And finally, if you'd like to search our podcast library of almost 300 episodes subscribe to our email list, or share feedback with us, please visit our website at tickbootcamp.com. Thank you, as always, for listening.